This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The secrets that are mine alone. Morning. It's coming up to two minutes past ten. You are tuned to 102.7 3 R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr. Beach. Good morning, Dr. Beach. Good morning, Bron. How are you? I'm very well. I'm still on a bit of a buzz after seeing Jen Clyer at the Croxton last night. It was a fantastic gig. Great. Yeah, it was very, very nice. And Would've you had great. yeah, full house, sold out. Would have been a great venue. They were they were on fire. Mm. I'm still on a buzz after the Bombers' great win on the Friday night. It's gonna be big year. <laughs> it's gonna be big year. I'm gonna be on a buzz tonight after the Demons beat the Cats this afternoon. Because it's gonna be a big year. Yeah, I think it is gonna be big. Let's stay optimistic. Let's stay optimistic, and perhaps we should stay off footy. But yeah, who can help <laughs> it? This is this is a local show, local radio show. Melbourne. Well, we are local and global. We are local and global. We are all levels. Yeah. Thanks, Tim, very much for Vital Bits, you rebel. Thank you, uh, Andrew Minga. You're a rebel too. What other what other radio station on this planet would you have, like a special 10-minute segment dedicated to gospel-themed spoon playing? <laughs> it was great. Loved it. Maybe PBS. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> True. True. That's, that's what I love about Melbourne. We have, you know, I love footy. And I love that we have PBS and I love that we have Triple R. We're so lucky. Hey, uh, let's go through today's program because it's a big one. Coming in shortly, we've got Cade Mills. He's going to be talking about a recent survey looking at the health of Port Phillip Bay and a bit of a drum roll for the Sea Slug Census, which is coming up in a few weeks' time. The Triple S. Yeah. (laughs) 
good tongue twister for a Sunday morning. Well, it's a double SC, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. And when we when Cade was in last time, we were talking about shellfish reef restoration projects and we got to the end of the program, didn't quite get into um, some big stuff going on in China. So I'm going to hit him up for some information on that too. Excellent. Unprompted. Maybe we won't. He's, he, won't he might not be prepared. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> We're then going to cross to Terry Allen for a uh, phone dive report. Um, the diving this weekend that Terry's been involved with anyway was cancelled because of the the uh, crazy weather. But we'll uh, find out a little bit about what's been going on with diving uh, and what's coming up as well. Then in studio we are going to be joined by Dr Rebecca Morris and Dr Teresa Conlechner. They are from the University of Melbourne and are part of a team looking into a natural approach for um, coastal restoration. So rather than looking at uh, issues related to erosion and flooding um, from sea level rise and all sorts of other things, tackling it with concrete um, Sorry, someone's phone's buzzing. No, we're good. <laughs> um, yes, sorry, got distracted. Yeah, rather than, look, all the artificial constructions that have happened in the past, maybe yeah. a more natural approach might be the way to go. So they're part of a team that's looking into that. Well, I'm curious as to what that will be. Yes. But I guess we'll find out. We will. And then Dave Donnelly, to close the show, is going to be talking to us about shepherd's beaked whale, which is one of the most, if not the most, uh, elusive species of cetacean on the planet. Very, very few sightings in history, very few uh, documented uh, information, very little documented information about the shepherd's big whale and what they're all about. So Dave's going to talk to us about that. Excellent. Mm, there's been some good sightings lately. And I guess you heard about the, um, the stranding, the, the very sad stranding of 150 or more pilot whales, which was, um, yeah, all over the news. So. Mm. What do you say? What do you say? What do you t- yeah, it's maybe a natural ph- phenomenon, probably. But, where, you know, there are people who... L- location? WA. Mm. North, it south? Es- oh, it escapes me at the moment. Yep. I know it's bad. You know, south. No, no, it's Thanks, south. Kent. Yep, yep. Um, shall we do some weather? Uh, yeah, let's do some weather. It's um, yeah, what an interesting day yesterday. It was nice. To, fantastic to get some rain. Mm. God, we need it, don't we? Um 24 degrees today, uh, partly cloudy, slight chance for shower today, increasing to a high chance in the early evening, so we might get some more, uh, maximum of 5 millimetres, according to the Bureau. Chance for thunderstorm, but thunderstorm about the nearby hills in the early morning, so I hope you are getting that out in the nearby hills. Uh, tomorrow's going to be a shower or two, windy, 18 degrees. Um, Tuesday, 21 degrees, partly cloudy. Wednesday, 27 degrees, partly cloudy, dropping down to 22. 21 for... Friday um, for Crucifixion Day on Friday, 21 degrees. Saturday is going to be 21 degrees as Mm. well. Looking ahead to Easter. Oh, and people who are heading out on the water will want to know what's happening with the tides. At Point Lonsdale, it was high tide at 6 this morning, so it's going to be low tide a couple of minutes before high noon. And swell, small swells and strengthening northwest winds are providing limited surf opportunities in Victoria. So don't get the board out. We're not having a report from Dr. Surf, are we? Uh, no, he'll be in next week. And he was in last week with you. He was indeed. Yeah, we had a fun show while you were away. Well, no, no, we always have a fun show. I had a fun show now. But yeah, I, well, it wasn't quite as professional as it is with you here, Bron. <laughs> no. There were a, a couple of slips. So, yeah, we kind of look at one another. It's like, what, what, what would Bron do? You're backpedalling so hard you're about to go through that walk, Dr. Beach. <laughs> 
<laughs> we, had, we had the party streamers out. And, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Glad to see that cleaned up. <laughs> hey, we've got a couple of minutes for a little bit of news. I see you have a scientific paper in front of you. I do have a scientific paper in front of me, as I like to do. This one um, is from a journal called Scientific Reports. And again, people would have heard about this during the week. It was quite widely reported in the media. And this is a paper which is published by the Ocean Cleanup Foundation, which is based in the Netherlands. And there are people from New Zealand on it and all sorts of places, Germany. But anyway, this is about the um, GP, GP, which is you know, so this monster out in the Pacific, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, mm. now has its, known, its own acronym. And this is where people got out and did some really interesting studies on it and have found that it is rapidly accumulating plastic as we might imagine. Mm. But it's good to get some data, some good hard data. And it's a big... It, the whole thing is twice the size of France. <laughs> God. Yeah. But that's going out to... So right in the epicentre of it, in the middle of it, mm. which is a smaller area, a much smaller area, about 10% of that, mostly made up of fishing nets, gear from fishing. It's been discarded, plastic fishing nets, which of course are buoyant and mm. will float to the surface and there's a lot of very small particulate matter as well which is around towards the outside of this area which I repeat is twice the size of France so yeah it's, it's continuing. You're right it's important to have those data so that cleanup efforts can be planned appropriately yeah look at modeling where is this how is this going to continue to grow and where is it going to go yeah and I would really like to um to to do some some research, some thought about how people are planning to clean this up, whether you get a big barge out there and chuck it on, but, you know, it, I think that's probably quite Boyan slats to onto do. it. Yeah. He's onto it. <laughs> Giddy up, Boyan. We're big Boyan slap fans here on Radio America. Yeah, Boyan slap. Future Nobel Prize winner. How many times have we said that? A few. Two, three. No, we <laughs> said it a few times. I think we might have some music, Dr Beach. Let's play some music. Um, actually, before we do that, a couple of quick shout-outs. Sorry, excuse me, I forgot to mention these. One was the... Um, just wanted to, a quick report on the uh, Ocean Film Festival World Tour, which has been running throughout the week. I went along to the session on Wednesday night at the Astor. Uh, there was one, I think, last night at Rosebud, but it's been all over the place, um, both here in Victoria but interstate as well and it's now going to be going overseas. Absolutely one of the best things I've ever been to. What did you see? Um, there were about seven or eight different films that were shown. Some of them were a couple of minutes long. Um, in fact, the shortest one was two minutes long and it was filmed here in Port Phillip Bay and it was a whole series of um, video clips of what looked to be mostly cuttlefish consuming their prey. Some of the prey was were as big or bigger than them. There was this great piece of footage of a cuddle just grabbing um, a snapper, <laughs> little baby oh. snapper, massive. Um, but there was this beautiful animation that was sort of woven in through these pieces of video footage. Wonderful. Terry um, uh, ran into Terry there. We ended up sitting together um, with um, my mate Jack. And, yeah, just fantastic. So I thoroughly recommend it. There was a, a half hour, I think it was about half hour, doco about these two guys from Latvia um, who just decided they were going to row across the southern Atlantic and get to um, Rio in time for the Olympic Games. And then they hit all sorts. They'd never been ocean rowing before. <laughs> you know, exercise. It was it was sensational. Like the whole thing was just wonderful. I'm I'm way underselling it. So 
Ocean Film Festival uh, World Tour. It comes around every year. It'll come around about this time next year. And we, we gave it some promotion. We actually had the festival director, Jemima Robinson, on the program talking about it. Um, but next year uh, we will make sure we really give it a big rev up because it's sold out. It's sold out pretty much everywhere. They're going to need a bigger theatre. So... So at that Wonderful. the Astor, but many other venues as well. Uh, in Melbourne, it was the Astor. It was on at Crown as well, uh, but they showed it in Halls Gap. It was on in Warrnambool. It was on in Rosebud. I think they showed it in Geelong. Um, lots and lots of different places, but yeah, it, it was. I couldn't speak highly enough. The quality of the films that were in it were just outstanding. There was a little short piece on a on a free diver. Great um, piece on big wave surfers in Hawaii. I was thinking about Doctor Surf the whole time watching that. <laughs> about the culture of big wave surfing. It, w- it was just great. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, I think we will definitely play some music now. Um, last weekend I was in Sydney. I, I took my daughter up to see uh, Ed Sheeran and I will talk about that at another time <laughs> or maybe not at all. Um, but uh, stayed with my dear friend Claire and I know, Claire, you're listening and so I wanted to play this track for you. This is uh, Jimmy Little's version of um, the great Paul Kelly uh, piece of music, Randall Week Bells. You are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Without further ado, we're going to welcome Cade Mills. Morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic this morning. Looking forward to it. Very good. Kate, it's really good to see you come with um, some graphs in front of you. So you've got some hard data. That's what we like here on Radio Marinara. I walk around the streets with my graphs everywhere in case I have a, someone needs a conversation in the bar and they want to know a bit more. I like to be precise. Can you pull out the Excel spreadsheet if you need to go further into yeah, the data? Yeah, I've got or? that on my phone already loaded and Excellent. ready to go. Yeah. What do the graphs say? Well, this is... I guess it's an initial look at a survey that I started. Um, There's a lot of work going on in the moment in Port Phillip Bay to improve the health of the bay. So I figured a good starting point was to actually get an idea of how healthy people thought the bay was and what a healthy bay would look like to them. So the survey's still going and I believe Ron put a link on Facebook for me. I think so. Last time you were in? Or yesterday? Oh, yesterday. Not yet. I will after this program. There's a link going for people to fill out. It actually closes off tomorrow. There's... um, couple of good science books on offer for people to fill out the survey but excuse me <coughs> so yep. can we just go back a step we're talking about the health of the bay what does that mean how do we define the word health that's exactly why i'm asking people uh-huh. to do the work for me right. um i was just saying before you can't quite stick a thermometer in the bay and read its temperature and say yep it's healthy or not um i guess it's quite a subjective term particularly when it comes to the environment um it can't really tell us how it's feeling and we can read some of the signs and symptoms but it I guess with natural variability, it's really hard to know whether it's healthy or not. And considering how much it's changed since settlement, you know, what do you use as a baseline for a healthy bay? So really all I'm looking at is to try and get if an idea from people, areas that they think are healthy, so what a healthy site looks like to them, and then areas that they think are unhealthy. And the idea is to then basically develop a sort of monitoring program with people having their involvement to... I guess, look at some of these parameters that they're interested in working with scientists in a realistic way. When, when, when you get a response from somebody, do you ask at the time of response how long they have lived or observed a particular area? So what, what are they comparing it to? 
We do. I've even got that on my graph in front of me. Nice leading question. So <laughs> That was not a Dorothy Dixon, by the way. <laughs> so it was quite interesting. Part of it is just to look at how many people have been snorkelling and diving in the bay. I guess part of it is you see a lot of surveys and you see a lot of stuff like stock assessments, fisheries, and a lot of that's people that sit on top of the water. It's not often the people that actually got their head under the water get asked what's going on. And I guess in my humble opinion, they're the ones that seem to see a lot more. They're actually in there all the time. So we've got some of the people who's over like 10% were, have been diving in the bay for like 30 years. So a lot, they are actually the second the third most sort of abundant group. And then what was quite encouraging to see, a huge amount of people, so over 35% of respondents had only been diving for the last one to five years. But what it means is you have a lot of people getting out there and they're only recently starting to get out there. So I, it, my one of my interpretations of that is you've actually... People are, I guess, exploring the bay a lot more, perhaps. It could also be as people get older, they're less able to get in the water. But, yeah, so we have the views from people that have been around for 30 years, 20, 10, and then people that have only been just recently. So we've got a nice sort of scope to compare across. One thing I've noticed over the last few years is the um, impact of social media in terms of getting information out there and you have these specific groups that have formed. There's a few um, scuba diving um, specific groups and the information that gets shared around um from people who are part of these groups is is quite powerful, isn't it? It is, and I'm even noticing some of that in the results of the survey. So things such as not seeing dead stingrays under a pier would be a sign of a healthy environment to some to some people. It's, uh, it's certainly a sign of change and impact as well, impact of changing legislation and the enforcement that comes with that. Most definitely, and it put it on the radar. I think if I had have asked this question a year ago, I probably wouldn't have had it many if any of those responses, but as a result of the work that was done with the raise awareness, that's obviously influenced a lot of people. And sponges was another one that came up, strangely enough, with the work that Dive to You did on the um, sponge relocation at Blairgowrie Pier. So that was another thing. So you can see the impact of that coming there. But I think the I was surprised with the most is they were very well thought out answers. Mm. I shouldn't say I was surprised, but it was it was encouraging to see that people when they're there. Obviously, when they're underwater, they're thinking a hell of a lot while they're there observing their fish and all the rest of it. So things such as the fish diversity, algal diversity, um, barrens was something that they were, you know, basically they want to see less of. Uh, introduced species, so undar- the Andaria that we see quite often, a lot of people sort of pull that up as something to be concerned about. Andaria being uh, algal species? Sorry, yeah, the yep. Japanese kelp, yep. the wakame. Yeah, it's quite tasty as well. So people can harvest it and eat it while they're out there as well. But, yeah, a lot of those things were sort of coming up, which I guess if you had have asked a scientist the same question, they would have pointed to these things too. Mm. And it reflects, I want to say, of course, and I guess it is, that I mean, somebody who is going to put on a mask and snorkel, get under the water and have a look, is, and if they've been doing it for a long period of time, is going to develop a deep affection for that. It does, and it takes a bit of commitment, I think, to get out there. It's not quite as easy as, you know, going for a swim. Yep. I guess launching a boat takes a bit of commitment as well, but it's you have to actually get into the environment. I think that is the difference as opposed to sitting on top of it. You actually become part of it. And, yeah, people are obviously thinking a lot while they're out there and seeing um, a lot of the changes. Things like sedimentation was one I didn't expect to come up, but people are noticing a lot of the reefs, particularly near whether it's any sort of freshwater or stormwater drains, they're noticing that sedimentation and how it impacts upon the life that's in their area. 
So they're very observant. Do you think that then leads on to uh, like an automatic sense of stewardship that comes from that? They because they notice it they feel that there's some kind of drive to bring about some positive change. Yeah, and I think they get frustrated with a lot of that too. They sort of see the stormwater sort of coming out and they'll see those brown plumes and they're like, surely there's something we can do, whether it's upstream or at the area, to try and reduce that because they're seeing the effect it has on their local area. And they do have quite a strong stewardship for the local area. And we found that a lot of people had been... They go to the same location quite frequently, whether it's the easiest spot they can walk down there or it's just a close drive or it's just somewhere that's sort of close to them they will constantly visit these places and even things like dead corals they were talking about you know the um, stony corals that we get and Ricketts Point has a lot of them there Um, so people were talking about how they're noticing that a bit more Um, the cause of the death I've got no idea but I even noticed it myself the other day when I was out there. Mm. You're obviously getting a lot of responses I mean well, are you getting a lot of responses? You're getting some responses from what I gather, but is it, is it pleasing? Is it the number that you were looking for? Do you want more? Oh, I always, you want, always more. want more. The, of course. the more people Do that respond, the more we're going to yeah. know. But we've had about 140, 150 people respond already, which is, I think it's fantastic numbers. They're all people that have been out and with their head in the water. So we're off to a good start. It closes on Monday, so hopefully we come home with a flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Closing on Monday, any opportunity to extend it? I mean, you want to look at the first data set, I gather, but then you could keep it going. I have other work commitments that I need to <laughs> attend to, so we need to put, a, I guess, a finish line on it so I can then write the report. And part of it, too, is actually making it accessible to all groups. Yep. Um, and one of the things that probably won't surprise anyone is that litter came up as quite a concern. And so there are a lot of groups around the Bay doing work with litter and the idea is to actually give them some information on how concerned people are at litter and what locations they're concerned with and they can actually use that then to help with expand their programs. It's interesting when Neil Blake was in last we were talking about litter and marine litter and marine debris and, and one of his issues that he's working towards is to try and almost remove that term marine debris because it, it brings about a sense that it's coming from the marine environment and it's not it's coming from the land. And so while we continue to think of it as marine debris, it's a problem in the marine environment. And he said that's that's a real issue that we have to face. And I think that was reflected in a lot of the answers. People people that are in the water realise that. They, they mm. see what's there. They see whether it's the chip wrappers, the straws and stuff like that. And they're like, you know, it's not the fish throwing the chips away. Yes. It's obviously someone on land doing that. Yeah. That's it. Um, I'm just looking at the time and we're going to have Terry on in just a sec. We're going to park the shellfish reef restoration work in China until you're in next. <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't prepared I was gonna, for that one. I know. I was going to put you on the spot anyway. Um, quick plug for the sea slug census because that's going to come up soon, but we'll have you back in to talk about that in more detail. But just to put it on people's radar. Yes, on the 21st and 22nd of April, it is basically encouraging people to get out there and take photos of as many sea slugs as they can. And if we're able to, I'd like to get Bob Byrne in, who's the the Victorian sea slug man. He's seen them all his life and he's a constructor building um, works in the construction industry by trade but does sea slugs in his part time and I was chatting to him the other day and he went down to Point Lonsdale and in one low tide he found 45 species <gasps> species 45 species at one location he's found over at that location he's found over 100 so I'm putting the challenge out there if anyone can better that I'd be mighty impressed but Bob himself said oh, divers won't see them they'll just see the big ones they don't look close enough so he also threw down the gauntlet to say that maybe divers should slow, slow down a little bit and check out the little ones. Is but, yeah, there'll be more information coming on that one, but it's on the VMPA website 
in the Reef Watch. Excellent. Now, in uh, a few minutes, we're going to have um, Rebecca Morris and Teresa Conlechner in the studio talking about natural approach to coastal restoration. And given the work that you've been doing in this area, um, would you like to stick around? I'd love to stick I, around. I reckon, Thanks, Brian. I know you guys know each other anyway, so we'll do that. Yeah. And you're here on Radio Marinara. We're now going to cross um, to speak with Terry Allen, who is on the phone for a surf, I was nearly said surf report. You can do a surf report if you want. You might be better off doing a dive report, though. Hi, Terry. Hey, Brian. Hey, Dr. Beach. How are you going? I'm very well. How are you, Terry? I'm good. I'm good. In fact, I can give a surf report. We tried to go sailing at, uh, sorry, we tried to go diving at South Road Brighton yesterday, teaching open water. And uh, if you remember those cold fronts roaring over, we, uh, in between trying to dive, we had a bit of surf. <laughs> Not very pleasant. That was always a good surf spot there outside what was what used to be called Mario's down there around the Brighton Beach bars at the point there. Yeah. Yeah, well, they've put in the, uh, you know, they've put in the groins, which I don't know whether they do anything good or not, but um, it's kind of changed the whole uh, uh, bottom topography there. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad for the surfing, but, yeah, we certainly didn't want it yesterday. It was a bit ordinary. <laughs> now, I have to apologise, Terry, for um, for stealing all your thunder at the start of the show because I forgot that I was going to talk to you. We can talk some more um, in more detail about the, uh, the Ocean Film Festival World Tour. Uh, it was a pretty special night, wasn't it, on Wednesday? Yes, it, it really was. Uh, it was it was great. I'd been a few times before, but I hadn't been for a couple of years, and I'd actually forgotten how good it was. Um, and as I said to you the other day, I think we need, need to really uh, rouse up lots of Radio Marinara subscribers uh, and us as a team, too. I mean, there probably were plenty there in the audience anyway, but... Um, the one you didn't mention, which I thought I would mention, besides the Latvians with the boils on their bum. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mention <laughs> the boils on the bums. <laughs> no, you didn't. I thought I'd just throw that in. Because uh, I'd never been, you know, rowing before and they got... And there was very, very graphic photos of them, uh, video of them squeezing the boils on their bum. It was so oh. funny. It was, hor- uh, yeah. it was just mind-blowing. It was kind of <laughs> necessary to really appreciate the pain that they were in and what they were trying to do because it was... The, oh, it was just horrible. Oh, yeah. I felt so oh, bad yeah. for them. Yeah. Oh, and then when the guy smashes his ribs up at the end oh. and they make a makeshift cast to strap him up and then he, right at the end, you know, they get to Rio. Oh, they don't get to Rio, do they? They got to Brazil in another bay and then they... He sort of gingerly jumped up onto the jetty with delight and then, you know, you just see he was just in so much pain. That's it. Oh, my God. Um, but the other one I liked was the... And I, I thought I'd sort of tie this in with a little bit of a sailing report that um, they had the Kiwi... Remember the Kiwi guy who lived in England? Oh, yeah. With his English family and he built a very sturdy, uh, decent-sized yacht in his backyard in suburban... London, I think it was. Actually, I can't remember where he actually was. And then they got a huge crane and they lifted the yacht right out, the whole sub, the whole, you know, all the English people going, oh, look at that crazy Kiwi, oh, he's mad, you know. <laughs> and they just were standing around watching this whole thing. They lift the thing out and then he sails it all the way to, um, to New Zealand. Yes. Yeah, so that was great. But it was like a, it was like a ten or twenty year odyssey, I think, wasn't it? Almost. And then they sort of interviewed him now, and um, yeah, that, that was very good. And it was great. You know, his son came along to sail, and his 
his poor wife occasionally came along on the trips and yeah, well, this that is, was very funny. This is where it all started because the filmmaker lived next door. He was a, uh, a boy at the time and friends with this man's son and, oh, right. and saw the entire thing unfold. And when we're talking about a yacht, it wasn't a little, little tiny yacht. You know, we're not talking about a small-scale thing. It was massive. And yeah, it basically yeah. took up this guy's entire backyard. And as you said, Terry, it was like a 10-year exercise to build this thing from scratch. Oh. I think you can probably... Well, what I'll... Um, I might get back in touch with um, Jemima Robinson, the film, um, the, the Ocean Film Festival director, and, and see where people might be able to catch some of these films now that they've been screened, because uh, I, I'm hoping that you can be able... You know, you could download them, might be able to find them on iTunes or something like that. Cause, um, yeah, yeah through some some uh, avenue anyway because it was um, it was a really extraordinary thing to see but yes i totally well, agree next year we'll put the big call out and and um i don't know i mean the, it was packed it was all sold out so it's not like they they need a big plug to get people there but we really would love to see as many people sort of associated with this program there as possible yeah yeah no it was good fun and i'm hoping you know the two minute uh, on the um giant cuttles um smashing all those fish that would be I'm, I'm hopefully that'll come out on you know youtube or somewhere um, yeah. that's well worth watching for the local melbourne diving yeah, yeah do you want to give pang a bit of a plug and and just give our um, people listening a, a um just a quick summary of who pang is because he's very well known amongst melbourne diving circles isn't he yeah so pang um incredible uh, he he actually breeds well i know he used to i think he still does he, he has a license to breed seahorses and sea dragons and some of the fantastic footage you see, like on Blue Planet 2 that was on Saturday last week, uh, was, you know, the seahorses and, and such giving birth, the male seahorses, you know, giving birth. And he has filmed all of that. And he he has some incredible footage. A lot of it, I think, from the Flinders Pier as well, of just, yeah, things like the cuttlefish, but sea dragons. Uh, he's got incredible footage of a seal, a cheeky seal coming down and playing with a sea dragon like a toy, like... <laughs> It's a bit. It's almost a bit cruel. It gets away, but you're like, oh my gosh, the seal. It's very, very funny. But Pang, Pang is incredible, um, and yeah, he's the go-to man for for the uh, seahorse stuff and that. Whenever you know people need to want to film things, so yeah, that was great. He got a, a big credit at the end, which was good. And he also, I noticed he was in the credits for Blue Planet too on the episode the other week on uh, Green Seas. So, um, and if anyone of it, your listeners didn't get to see that Blue Planet too. Um, please try and... Uh, oh, you'll be able to sit on the Channel 9, whatever it's called, uh, app. And um, that's a lot of that was filmed... Um, the cuttlefish were filmed in Wyala in South Australia and the sea dragons uh, are all filmed around Melbourne. So, yeah, it's Yago, South Australia. So, yeah. Yep. Excellent. Uh, all right, uh, we're going to let you go. I think between now and when you come in next, we um, are going to be... Going, uh, you're going off to the Philippines, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to go look at some, hopefully, some big stuff down in the Sulu Sea. So um, I'll be in the north, in the south, uh, southwest part of Philippines, and a place called Tubataha. So um, yeah, I hope I can report on some uh, healthy, seeing healthy seas and seeing a few sharks for a change would be great. Great. Okay, thanks so much, Terry, and um, we'll catch okay. you when, catch you when you get back. Okay. See you. See, See you, Dr. Beach. Bye. See you, Terry. 
And uh, that was Terry Allen there reporting on all kinds of different things. Including the film festival. Indeed. Now, we're all familiar with concrete walls, breakwaters and other constructions built to combat erosion and flooding, each of which is increasingly threatening to occur from rising sea levels. However, being expensive and often with negative environmental impacts, scientists are now looking to where the natural coastal defence structures might be the better way to go. Dr Rebecca Morris is from the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne and Dr Teresa Conlechner is from its School of Geography. Both of them are part of a team from the University of Melbourne looking to trial natural inbuilt coastal defence mechanisms like sand dunes, mangroves, kelp beds and shellfish reefs. They're joining us now to talk about the great promise of a natural approach to coastal restoration. Rebecca, Teresa, good morning and welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you both here. Let's start with your team because I've, there are two of you here, but you're part of a broader team. Who are you and what do you do? Um, so we're part of a, a research centre um, called the National Centre for Coast and Climate. Um, this is a, a NISP-funded uh, centre. There's a number of us involved in it. Um, there's three uh, postdocs. Uh, there's a, a third, uh, aside from me and Rebecca, um, a guy called Ben Fest who is looking at blue carbon. Um, now, you mentioned NISP-funded. What's NISP? Uh, that would be the National... Environmental Science Program. Right. Yeah. Yep. Had to think about that one a little. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, and you're from different schools too. So how does that work? One of you from School of Biosciences. Is that you, Becky? Yes, yep. that's right. Um, so I guess our, our supervisors, um, Steve Swera is from the School of Biosciences and then Dave Kennedy is from the School of Geography. Um, and Teresa's work focuses more on coastal geomorphology, whereas mine's more on marine ecology. So we kind of straddle across the different schools um, based on our expertise. Um, so it's kind of a multidisciplinary project, which is good. Great. So where are we at at the moment with prioritising coastal restoration, both here locally but elsewhere? There's been quite a lot of coastal modification over the decades, I guess in some places, centuries. Where are we at with prioritising that right now? Um, so... Oh, sorry. Oh, so coastal restoration, where does that sit? So in terms of um, prioritising that, it's something important that we should be focusing on and be investing in, putting research um, dollars in that area. Where, where, where does it sit? Yeah, so I guess um, in terms of coastal defence, um, the traditional way to go is to build hard defence engineered structures, so seawalls, breakwaters. Um, and there isn't really um, kind of an avenue at the moment that moves towards restored or created structures for coastal defence. Restoration really is used mainly for um, to, to just to restore the habitats, mainly for a, a biodiversity purpose. Um, and so this is not used that often for coastal defence at the moment. Um, there's been a lot of investment in shellfish reef restoration, not only in Port Phillip Bay, but elsewhere around the world. And we've got Cade Mills with us here still. Yep. Cade and I are sharing a microphone at the moment because the studio is so packed. So jump in, Cade, if you, if you want at any point. Um, how successful have these efforts been to restore once was an important and supportive ecosystem in its own right? Is that for me? <laughs> you're talking well, for, for anyone who wants yeah. to answer it, yeah. Well, there's, especially in the States, they're starting to use shellfish reefs sort of intertidally to do exactly what the um, Teresa and Becky are looking at. Is there, so you guys are looking at doing mangroves for a similar type of purpose, isn't it? So you're actually re restoring an ecological function at the same time at, and at the same time you're also getting that defence protection as well. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so in the US, they use this um, method much more for case of defense. And so they have restored um, kilometers of oyster reefs um, because in the future, um, in the past, they lost them, but it's being done more now for case of defense. Um, here in the bay, it's really being restored mainly for biodiversity and it's quite deep. Um, the reefs around 10 meters, so at that um, depth, they're probably not going to provide any coastal defense. But for us, we're looking at more kind of intertidal habitats like mangroves and also mussel reefs. And those, because they're a bit shallower, um, are more, more likely to be able to provide us with that, that service. So it sounds like a bit of a win-win situation in that sense. So you're getting the coastal defence, but you're also restoring some of these habitats. Do you know what we've lost or what was around intertidally, particularly in the bay, um, and what changes have occurred? Um, in terms of oyster reefs and mussel beds, it was pretty extensive in the bay. Um, we've lost, well, there's no um, oyster reefs, pretty much there's they're functionally extinct. So there's very remnant patches, um, but very little. So we've lost almost everything for oyster reefs. Um, mussels, you can still find them in, in certain areas, but again, they're, they're just not what they once were. And so will it just be putting mussels down onto a soft sediment or will you use a hard substrate of some sort to bring that back? Do they need something to hang on to, to I guess, to get a leg up to begin with? The mussels do. So the mussels are a hard substrata species, so we need to put something in for them to colonise. And so we're putting in a mixture of... um, So this project's actually in collaboration with um, City of Greater Geelong Council, and they're putting in um, a mix of recycled shell and also natural um, rock um, for the mussels to attach to. Can we talk a bit about your mangrove project? Um, I was really interested reading through uh, this publication that's come out talking about the hybrid approach. Can you talk us through the hybrid approach? Um, so I guess there's a few different approaches that you can take to this kind of coastal defence work. And so one that's called kind of more of the soft approach is to just restore habitats the way they are. So just to put salt marsh in or just to put mangroves in. But in some cases, these kind of habitats, they, they actually need... Um, sheltered conditions to be able to establish. It's it's like an opportunity window that they need. And um, so the hybrid approach is where you actually, you do put a small amount of infrastructure in that actually protects them from the waves while they're small and then they can establish and grow. And so that's called the hybrid approach because you're not completely um, banishing the hard infrastructure. You have to use a little bit, but in combination with the natural infrastructure as well. Yeah, and these are, they're like concrete um, almost pots aren't they? Planters yeah yeah um, so we're working with um, Reef Design Lab that they're, they're an advanced manufacturing company in um, Melbourne and they um, do some really amazing reefs and lots of crazy designs and, and they are going to come up with something that's suitable for the Melbourne environment for us to be able to to plant mangroves like you would in someone's garden, I guess. Where are you looking at establishing these ones? Um, So these ones are Altona Coastal Park. So uh, Teresa actually did a bit of work that showed how much land um, they've actually lost there. Um, And so they lost, I think, about 1.4 metres per year ongoing. And so we'll put the mangroves there to try and protect that part of the coast but also in western port as well yeah i was going to ask lang lang and yeah Uh, so yeah i've obviously i've I've been aware of mangroves being in western port and the top of western port so there were mangroves at altona were there there still are some mangroves in altona yeah 
Okay, so if cool. you go down the creeks, so they they've managed to establish more in the sheltered parts. Um, so there are a few there, but on the actual open kind of bit of the bay, there there are very small, very few. So I guess our idea is to try and expand the mangroves that are already there to provide defence. I'm really interested to see um, whether having these concrete planters will make a difference for uh, just acceptance of these plantings as a, as a genuine uh, effort to try and restore these mangroves um, as, a, as an ecosystem in its own right. Well, a few years ago we had Tim Ely on the program and he's done a lot of work over the decades in trying to re-establish mangroves at the top of Western Port, as you're saying, Dr Beach. But uh, his efforts have been thwarted by vandalism of people who don't like the look of the mangroves and as, as fast as he and his volunteers have been planting mangrove seedlings, he, he had some real issues with people just pulling them out. So I'm really interested to see and we'll only know this in time where having those concrete planters will sort of lend some uh, uh, some formality, I suppose, or some um, some licence to, to do this, whether people just accept them as this is an official thing that's happening now. Yeah, so it will be interesting. I mean, we have been doing some kind of social survey work alongside this eco-engineering because that is one of the um, key aspects of this is uh, kind of social perception um, because obviously seawalls are they're a social insertion to the environment they're only there because we need them mm. um and so we have done some surveys um that kind of ask people's opinions about these kind of eco-engineered structures and, and whether they support the idea or not and there is overwhelming support for them what we've found from our surveys so far but i think the next step is to kind of ask okay do you prefer this type of soft engineering over this type mm. and it will be uh, interesting to to find out more <laughs> We'll have to wrap it up because we've got Dave Donnelly wanting to come in and talk about shepherd's beak whales as well. But what I'm hoping is can we have you back in a few months' time to talk about this work and how it's travelling and also to talk more about the um, the economic... How that, how that economic um, side of things stacks up for the natural versus the more sort of traditional approaches to restoration and protection as well. Yeah, we can definitely keep you updated as the projects pro- progress. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks Thank for you. having us. We've been speaking with uh, Drs Rebecca Morris and Teresa Conlickner from the University of Melbourne. It's 10 minutes to 10. This is Radio Marinara, a couple of station announcements, and then we're going to turn our attentions to the shepherd's beaked whale. People of the Universe. Boogie. It's Boogie Time. Easter weekend, our friend's farm in Tullarook. Boogie. Just an hour up the Hume. Angel Olsen. The Murlocs. Cable Ties. Deer Tick. Mildlife. Amel and the Sniffers. Cash Savage and so much more. Shake it loose together Boogie. at Boogie. Boogie this Easter. Proudly sponsoring Triple R. The Listies and Darabin Arts Speakeasy present Wikipedia, a dictionary of disgusting new words. Wikipedia is a seriously silly show with snot monsters, bubble machines and toilet paper guns. It's clowning, slapstick and improvised chaos for the whole family. Two shows only on Tuesday, April the 3rd at 10am and 1pm at Darabin Arts. Tickets available at darabinarts.com.au. Proud Triple R Sponsors. 
It is nine minutes to ten. Here you are on 3RRR Radio Marinara. <laughs> now the shepherd's beaked whale is one of the most elusive and least understood species of cetacean on the planet. We've got less than 30 official sightings anywhere in history and knowledge of the distribution, behaviour and morphology of the shepherd's beaked whale could be described as rudimentary at best. However, some recent sightings and accompanying evidence has made a significant advancement in what we know about shepherd's beaked whales. And it's all been written up in the latest edition of Marine Mammal Science. It's with great pleasure we welcome back to Radio Marinara to tell us about it and the paper itself, Manager of Killer Whales Australia, Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Dave. Welcome back. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Dr Beach. How are you going? Good, good, good. Great. Always good. <laughs> great to have you here. Let's talk about, let's start with a general description of the shepherd's beaked whale because they're quite unique creatures, aren't they? They certainly are. Like most beaked whales, they're quite unusual to, to view. Uh, most people haven't seen a beaked whale. Um, but this particular species is very easily diagnosed, uh, identified through diagnostic features. It's one of the, I guess, the most um, noticeable features of all the, the beaked whale species and perhaps only second to the dwarf minke whale in, in terms of its uh, uh, recognisability, if there's such a word as that. Now, they're described in this paper. The paper is called New Diagnostic in- Descriptions and Distribution Information for Shepherd's Beaked Whale uh, Tasmacetus shepherdi. Did I pronounce that incorrectly? That's correct. Yeah, of Southern Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they're described in it as a, a zyphid. Is that how you pronounce that? Ziphid. Ziphid yes. species. What's a ziphid species? That includes all the beaked whale species. So um, there's a, a range of beaked whale species distributed across the world. Most of them are poorly understood. Um, probably the shepherd's beaked whale is one of the least understood, and second only to the, uh, the recently described spade-toothed beaked whale. Right. So um, discovered in 1937? That's correct. That's quite late, isn't it, really? It is. Uh, but I guess there's a beaked whale, very elusive... Uh, particularly back in those days, not a lot of people uh, looking for whales out there in the open wide oceans and um, perhaps, uh, I guess, putting them all together as one species for, for convenience sake back in the day. But luckily somebody had the, uh, the good uh, goodwill to, to describe it back then. <laughs> now, only 25 confirmed sightings worldwide. That's Is correct. That right? That's reported and validated sightings. So there's probably hundreds, who knows. But um, the, what we're reporting on there are the first at-sea sightings. So in 2008, that was the first time it had been uh, officially validated at sea from a vessel. 2008? Correct. That's so recent. It is. My goodness. And how many have you had since then? 18 in total. Um, the most recent ones were earlier this year, actually, off uh, Kakura in New Zealand, which aren't reported in this paper because they came in a bit late. Mm. I've just had a really quick glance at the paper. Are they mostly sightings from the Southern Hemisphere? They're all sightings from the Southern Hemisphere, um, mostly from uh, sort of that uh, temperate region just before we hit the convergence towards Antarctica and most of them from New Zealand and Australia with a handful from the South Atlantic. Because we tend to think of whales as having a massive um, range, massive distribution range and these ones seem to be uh, from you know really restricted to the eastern part of the Australian Bight across to New Zealand there's almost like a triangle of distribution yeah, well, certainly within the sightings that we're reporting on there, that's, that's absolutely correct. There's a one random stranding in uh, WA, which uh, we probably think is a vagrant animal out, outside of its normal range. Mm. What is it about this particular hotspot? Any thoughts on why 
they're so restricted in their distribution? It's a very good question. I guess there's a fair bit of effort in terms of, um, relatively speaking, in terms of uh, scientific surveys, seismic surveys and um, some just general birding observations. Uh, Birdos are really good at finding whales and they spend a lot of time (laughs) on the continental shelf and uh, fortunately for us, they bother to tell us about them. Um, Hopefully we can do the same for the Birdos uh, when when we get an opportunity. Is there anything known about the ecology of them, um, about their breeding habits, longevity? Virtually nothing. Nothing known. We know basically where they are and a little bit of information about their dive times and their pod compositions, but really in terms of uh, longevity, reproduction, the cycles of reproduction, even what they feed on, we really don't know. Now, this recent collection of sightings ranges, as we've said, from 2008 to 2017, and it's what you've called dedicated marine mammal surveys and opportunistic field activities. So some of this is targeted. You've gone out there to look for them and others have just sort of popped up as you mentioned, with the with the bird watchers, um, well, is that yes, what that means? It, well, we haven't gone out looking for shepherd's beaked whale, but we're actually um, the sightings off Victoria were part of a uh, training or at least a proof of concept uh, research trip to target blue whales and see if we could track them using uh, sonar boys. And uh, in the midst of all that, we came across a number of different species of cetacean, including shepherd's beaked whale, twice. Uh, in January and March of 2012. Um, The other field activities include fishing charters and uh, birding trips and uh, filmmaking trips, which were to film killer whales in New Zealand and just happened to come across shepherd's beaked whale over there as well. Mm. So we've been very, very fortunate and luckily the people who have seen them um, have been smart enough to write down what they saw and take uh, good photos because... the reports we're reporting on there are really validated only by photos or footage. We don't accept anything that doesn't have evidence. So based on these sightings, what do we know about them? Let's start with their morphology and how big they grow to. Well, they've got a great morphology. I'm, I'm, I'm a real fan. Even when I first got my uh, my first my very first uh, whale guide book or, or field guide, I looked at that and I thought it looked like a chocolate malted back in the day when I was quite a youngster. <laughs> um, I've been lucky enough to see and photograph the species now and I can say that they're uh, really distinct. You know, lots of, a fair bit brown across the back there's a, some nice beautiful uh, creamy colors coming up from the pectoral fins beautiful pale melon um, even the coloration around the eye it's like a mask um, and the boys or the males have uh, erupted tusks or, or what we call apical teeth at the front of the lower jaw which is uh, fantastic and uniquely for the species they have teeth in the upper and lower jaw which uh, is unlike any other species of beaked whale Rob, where do they normally have their teeth Many big whales don't have any teeth erupting. Oh. They may have them in the gum but not erupted. Some have uh, tusks. Some have just a small number of teeth in the upper, upper, yes, the upper um, jaw, just in the back row. Um, they're really complex uh, species or, or group of animals to look at. Mm. Um, they're mostly suction feeders, we think, feeding on squid. But the fact that these guys have teeth in the upper and lower jaw suggests maybe they might be feeding on fish. And in terms of their habitat preference, they're quite deep-dwelling whales, aren't they? They are, right on the slope. Uh, the deepest, I think, we've got about 3,000 metres and, wow. and the shallow was around about uh, 150, 180 metres. So they're clearly moving up along the shelf to when their feeding behaviour and ending up on the top and then perhaps moving back down again to feed again. What's the next phase of research, Dave, into shepherd's beaked whales? Wow. Where are you heading with this? Get lots and lots of funding. <laughs> Do they have a conservation status, given we no, don't know much about them? No, they don't. They're, they're data deficient, as many cetaceans are, uh, and all of the beaked whales are for Australia. So I guess um, in terms of looking at them further, it's really it's going to be a continuation of this uh, gathering data from people who are seeing them at sea and uh, putting that into perhaps a, an updated version of this paper in a few years' time. Fantastic. And if our listeners are out there on the water and they think they might come into contact with a shepherd's beaked whale, what should they do? 
Oh, they should definitely report it. Um, the way to go about that would be perhaps uh, the easiest way might be to go through Killer Whales Australia. We have a, a very keen interest in Shepherd's Beak Whale. Uh, they've seen, been seen interacting with killer whales, so it wouldn't be that unusual. They also interact with pilot whales and, and bottlenose dolphins. So uh, if people do see them, perhaps give us a report through Killer Whales Australia uh, Facebook page. Yes. And we'd be happy to, to log that sighting and take your photos from you. You've got a great Facebook page. I was looking at it last night and there's a mobile number listed on there as well that you can have a look at and contact. Absolutely. We'd love to hear about killer whales too. Excellent. <laughs> we have to wrap up, but we're going to um, go out into the green room. I want to talk to you more about um, some of the other work that you do with Killer Whales Australia and get you back in st- soon to talk about that. Absolutely. Specifically. It'd be a pleasure. Can we put a uh, copy of that paper on our Facebook page too? Sure. For can. people to have a look at? Fantastic. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much, Bron. Thank you, Dr. Beach. We're bang on 10 o'clock. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Kent. He's been panelling for us today. Dr. Doolittle's out there with his uh, crew of doctors, other doctors. They're going to come in and take you through with radiotherapy to 11 o'clock when the Einsteiners will be in for an hour of exciting science as they do every Sunday. Thanks to our guests today, uh, Cade Mills, um, also Rebecca Morris and Teresa Conlickner from Melbourne University and, of course, Dave Donnelly on our program next week. Dr Surf's going to be in. He's got a guest. I actually don't know who it is, but uh, we're going to also have a look at... Uh, we'll be excited about that. And a look at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. There's some great marine-themed acts coming. Cool. For us to all go and have a bit of a laugh, and who doesn't love doing that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> have a great Sunday, and we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.